Let us pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. The first scriptural reading today comes from Philippians chapter 3, second half of verse 4 through 14. Let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or I've already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our final reading today from the 21st chapter of Matthew is another passage that the lectionary brings to us every three years. I looked in my notes and I only have preached on this text once in my first or second year of ministry, I think. And looking back, I think the senior pastor gave me that Sunday as an associate because he didn't want to deal with this text. So here we go. We listen trusting that God is speaking in the way we need to hear. It's the 21st chapter of Matthew, verses 33 through 46. Listen to another parable, Jesus says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son... They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. 
Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. The word of the Lord. Many years ago, the National Basketball Association was locked in a heated labor dispute. All the major sports have done this from time to time. At the core of this particular dispute, was the question of how players and owners could share billions of dollars in revenue in a way that would ensure the long-term health of the league as a whole, but also of each individual team. Basically, billionaires and millionaires were fighting over a huge pile of money. The whole thing was ridiculous. What was truly frustrating was the only ones who suffered during this labor dispute were the fans, of course, but more importantly, the thousands of employees who worked for the teams, who worked for the league, the vendors, the custodians, the ushers, the staff, who often lived paycheck to paycheck. As millionaires and billionaires squabbled amongst themselves, these folks struggled struggled to make ends meet, which is what always happens when ownership and upper management get caught up in a battle over who gets more of the enormous pie. In every labor dispute, no matter the setting, the ones who suffer the most are always the ones on the outside looking in. I think this is part of the reason Jesus comes off a little annoyed in today's passage. Jesus has work to do, important work to do. And the most religious people, once again, are getting in his way. He has come to save the world. He's come to give hope to those who need hope the most. He's healing the sick. He's bringing good news to the poor. He's giving sight to the blind. He's quoting scriptures and laying out his credentials, honoring the prophets that came before him. And still, the religious leaders want nothing to do with Jesus. He is trying to save the world And the most religious of his day want Jesus dead. Today's parable is one of only three parables of Jesus that are found in all three synoptic gospels. The story about a vineyard owner and his unruly tenants is found in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Apparently, it seems this is a story we really need to hear. It's harvest time, and a vineyard has produced a bumper crop, 
So much so that the landowner wants to cash in, so he sends words to his tenants that he's ready to collect his portion of the harvest. To be clear, there is nothing unusual about this relationship or this request. This is typical. This arrangement was quite normal in Roman-occupied Palestine. While a landowner was away, the tenants were given the responsibility and the privilege, really, to tend the vineyard. For their work, they would get to live on the land in a safe place and take a portion of the land of what the land produced. It was a good deal, fair deal. So when the landowners send servants, and they are first turned away, and then beaten, and then some killed, a familiar story takes a really bizarre turn. At this point, the landowner should have brought the hammer down on those ungrateful tenants. He should have taken by force what was rightfully his, but he doesn't do that. He is blinded by something, love perhaps, or maybe he just couldn't believe the reports of all the violence. Surely he thinks there must have been some misunderstanding. Whatever the case, the landowner decides to send his son, the future owner of the vineyard, thinking this will help de-escalate the situation. But the tenants, they don't relent. They don't only want what is rightfully theirs, their portion of the produce. They want it all. And so we are told they kill the son. This parable always makes me really uncomfortable. The main reason it makes me squirm is how easily it can be interpreted to support anti-Semitic thoughts and ideas. For too long, I believe this parable has been interpreted primarily as an explanation for the transfer of the kingdom of God from Israel, from the Jews, to another people, another nation. The thought goes the Jews were unfaithful, and so they were kicked out, and we were ushered in. This interpretation is as incomplete as it is dangerous because it fails to acknowledge two very important things. The first is that it was not the Jewish people who rejected Jesus. It was the most religious of the Jewish people, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the temple priests, those who had the most invested in the way the temple was being managed and the way the religion was being practiced. They were the ones who pushed back the hardest. The second thing is that the early church was made up of Gentiles, sure, but also a lot of Jewish people. Not all the Jews rejected Jesus. In fact, many stayed and made up the core of the early church. Beyond the dangers of anti-Semitism found in this transfer of power interpretation of this parable, it is also incomplete and dangerous because it conveniently takes you and me off the hook. Instead of seeing ourselves in this story, in this parable, we make it a story about them so it doesn't have to be a story about us. Reformer John Calvin shared this concern in his commentary on this passage when he wrote, this text was said once for Israel's benefit, no doubt, but it is written for us all. 
that if God chose us to be God's people, let us not revel in the vain and depraved confidence of the flesh, but endeavor on our part to behave as God asked God's children to do. This timeless parable is told for the most religious people of every age. It's a story for the people most invested in an institution in decline that is struggling to meet the needs of the people it was constructed to serve. Will Willimon served for several years as the Bishop of the North Alabama Conference of the United Methodist Church. One of the churches he oversaw was the Highland United Methodist Church in one of Birmingham's trendier downtown neighborhoods. A while ago, Highland began a series of ministries to the homeless, feeding them and giving them access to washers and dryers and post office boxes. The ministry expanded. It was so successful to the point that the church hired homeless men and women to run some of the ministries that were now housed in the church building. Sadly, a few members of the church organized a protest against all the changes. They lamented out loud that their once beautiful church now looked like a city bus stop. They even went around to local merchants and got them to oppose the church's ministries to the homeless. A front page article in the paper detailed their complaints. In response to the article, Bishop Willimon wrote an op-ed piece to the paper. I love it, he said, when the Methodist church makes front page news, not for losing its members or fighting over some social issue, but for being the church and doing what Jesus commanded us to do. Now, as much as I'm with Bishop Willimon on this one, frankly, I understand the frustration of those church members who didn't like all the changes. I understand, I've been there, how over time they might have come to believe that that church belonged to them. After all, they were the ones who gave the church they were the ones who worked at the church, who served the church. They were the ones who stayed when everybody else left. And I'm guessing that over the years, as they saw the attendance drop and giving decrease and pastors come and go, they wondered out loud when, if ever, God was going to return and pay them a visit. They sounded like the people in the psalm we heard today who were lamenting, where is God? Come back. We're ready. Return. Twenty years of ministry, I'm, I'm very invested in the Presbyterian Church USA working. I have a pension that I'm hoping is there when I retire. I have a master's degree that's frankly only marketable in one very thin slice of the world we live in. I care about the church. But whenever I feel myself becoming anxious or overinvested or worried about what's next, in the life of the church. I try really hard to remember, I take a deep breath and I try hard to remember that this building, these pews, this organ, these resources, my degree, these stoles, none of it is ours. They are all on loan from God. No church belongs to the people who reside in it. As much as we all obsess over our own congregation's unique stories and histories, 
the truth is we are all playing bit parts in a much larger story that transcends all of us as much as it includes all of us. It's a salvation story whose main character, whose main driver is the God of all creation. Whether we have been here all our life or just recently showed up, I believe all of us have been called by God to Grace Covenant for a particular purpose. And it's not to strengthen this institution or to reap its benefits. We have been called to this place, I believe, to make the world a better place. We have been called here to share the unique and simple gifts and talents of this particular vineyard with the world. I know you want more out of your life. I know you all want to be part of something bigger than yourselves. I know you are restless and unsatisfied. I know that what gets you out of bed on Sunday mornings is not the sermons or the music or your friends in this place. I know that you make your way here, whether physically or virtually, because you hold on to the hope. You stubbornly hold on to the hope that your life might just be more than the sum of its parts. Well, the good news is that it is. We, today, are tending God's vineyard. We are working on God's land, in God's house, with and for God's people. I mean, this is really important work we've been given, work with meaning and purpose. And I believe just like those farmers in the story we heard today, we are given a choice. We can get on board and join in God's love affair for the world, or we can get out of the way and let God do what God needs to do to ensure that all people know and hear the good news of the gospel. I have a good friend and colleague who's been doing ministry a lot longer than I have who believes something interesting. He believes the church in America is currently being deconstructed from all angles by God. He argues that the decline in church attendance and participation is too steep and too fast and too well executed to be a result of human failure or incompetence. The only explanation he believes for such a rapid and ubiquitous transformation of the church is the very spirit of the living God. Church membership in the U.S. was at 70% or higher from 1937 through 1976. It fell modestly to an average of about 68% in the 70s and through the early 90s. That's when I grew up in the church. One out of four people, three out of four people I knew went to church. The past 20 years, however, this, the church has fallen off a cliff. There's been a 20% decline since 1999, and more than half of that change occurred since the start of the last decade. It doesn't matter the denomination or the demographic, less people are going to church and less people are identifying with a religious tradition. And, and the difficult news is this trend is not, ex, it's not decreasing, it's accelerating. You know these numbers, I don't need to read them to you. 
You know these trends because you love the church. You're here during a pandemic because you care deeply about this place, about its ministries and its mission. You have felt the pain that, frankly, I have felt over the last 20 years. As the congregation I, congregations I preach to get smaller and smaller and smaller. What if this decline, this transformation, this change, that frankly we don't want, what if it's actually good news? What if the church's transformation is a sign that God is actually keeping God's promises? What if God is deconstructing the church as we know it, as we understand it, so God can find new ways to share the fruits of the vineyard with the world. The story seems pretty clear to me. Those who mistakenly come to believe that their vineyard, their temple, their church, their city, their nation, their world belongs to them will have it taken away and, and given to other people. And this is bad news for some, no doubt. But it's really good news for the vast majority of people who desperately rely on God's provision. It's really good news for those who are eager to experience the fruits of the kingdom, the fruits of love, mercy, justice, and peace. And I believe it is good news for us here today if we let it be. So how do we do it? How do we participate in God's reconstruction instead of consciously or unconsciously resisting it? How do we be good tenants of the vineyard, this particular vineyard, we've been given. Well, this parable seems to say it's all about clarifying ownership. Imagine what could happen if we embraced more fully the idea that this and every church belongs to God and God alone, and God is faithful. Imagine the possibilities if we came to see this dynamic city, this changing neighborhood, this strategic location, this church as. What if we saw all of that as belonging to God? Imagine the impact we could make if we professed that our nation belonged to God and not to one group of people, one political party, one demographic. Imagine the expansiveness of our mission if we embraced the idea that God called us to this place to enlarge the boundaries of our hearts. The love to which we are called, the love that demands that we look to the interests of others over our own, the love that requires us to love and pray for our enemies, the love that asks us to practice a radical generosity and to withhold judgment from people, this kind of love is only possible when we are free from feeling the need to hoard our resources, protect our borders, and defend ourselves from those who simply want what we have been given. We can't love others the way Jesus commands us to love when we live and work as if the vineyard belongs to us. All of us here, we are blessed beyond measure to have received the good news of the gospel and to have been called to be a part of this church family. May we together find the courage to give to God what belongs to God so we can share with those who need it most the fruits 
of God's vineyard, the fruits that are in this place right now. God has given you everything you need, the fruits of compassion, of love, of mercy, and of peace. Amen.